race weekend rolls around everybody's from all corners of the world and i just remember sitting in the race briefing thinking keep your head down don't talk too much to anyone because someone's gonna tap you on the shoulder and say excuse me (laughs) ma'am you don't belong here this is the metal set Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. We have an episode for you today that is very close to my heart as it features me, yours truly, and my entry into the world of self-supported ultra cycling races. For those who don't know, and as the name suggests, self-supported ultracycling races are completely self-supported. No support cars, no outside assistance, just you on a bike let out into the wild. Along with being distances that can range from five to 600 kilometers to 4,000 plus kilometers, they are also typically one stage. The clock does not stop, so it's up to racers to fully manage their rest, nutrition, and decide how far they want to push each day. Late 2018, I was introduced to the world of self-supported ultracycling and decided with no experience that I too was going to become an ultracyclist. Today's episode details how I did that in a little over three months to finish my first race, the 1,050 kilometer Biking Man Oman in 2019. Later that year, I finished the 750 kilometer Biking Man Corsica and made it 855 kilometers in biking time on before my very first scratch. But that is a story for another day. I'm just about to start training for the race around Rwanda, a thousand kilometer road and gravel race in February. So recording this episode really helped remind me what's possible. If you listen to this episode and think, if she can do that, so can I. That's exactly what I want you to think. And I hope it inspires you to take on an ultra cycling race or another challenge, whatever it may be. We hope you enjoy the episode. We're starting the first episode by putting you, Dawn, the co-host of the show, into the guest chair. I know. And there's a reason for that, because the metal set was conceived from your experience, right? That's right. That's right. The metal set was conceived from my experience in my first ultra Mm -hmm. race back in 2019, And I guess there's a bit of a story to be told around that because I had never really been that athletic. Mm. I'd always been sporty, but not really a good competitive athlete and haven't really done anything to truly push the limits of myself. And in 2019, the ultra race that I competed was Biking Man Oman, which was I believe 1,050 kilometers across the country of Oman, which is next door for us. I even surprised myself, and what I was surprising myself thinking about it today is that I really only had trained for it, not been a a cyclist as an adult. I trained for it in about a little over three months. That's amazing. I went from not having a bike to competing this ultra. The bike came a little later. The bike started a little later. I was renting bikes. But I bought my bike probably about two and a half months before the race. And apparently that's not really common. So I thought it would be good today and useful for people to discuss how I did that. It's also useful for me because I've signed up for another race and I need some. I need. And we'll get get into that 
in a bit as well. We will, we will. And I need to inspire myself, if you will, to figure out how on earth I did that and then channel 2019 Dawn into 2022 Dawn. Right. Take us to where it all began and how did you get into cycling then? Yeah, so I guess the story has origins or my journey into cycling has origins in August 2018. So I was just in France recently for three and a half weeks, cycling, hiking, just enjoying the cool weather. The first kind of year, everyone's really traveling post-pandemic. And in 2018, I was in the French Alps as well. And a friend of mine, Chris Thomas, had just completed his first transcontinental race. And for Thank those, you, Chris. It was his first ultra race. He's never scratched, but he successfully completed it, I think, um, came in for, about... For the benefit of everyone, what does scratched mean? Scratch means um, do not finish. Okay. Yeah. So you bow up for whatever reason. But um, it was his first race and he, I believe, got 16th or 17th. I'm not sure. Somewhere around that. And Chris had just returned from the Transcontinental. And for those who don't know, it's kind of the pinnacle of ultra cycling. It's one of the better known, longest standing ultra cycling races. And I think that year was around 4,000 kilometers. It started, I believe, in Belgium or France and went to Greece. Chris had just returned with some very funky tan lines, very skinny. (laughs) And you were like, I want that. And very happy. Yeah. (laughs) And um, he was very, very happy. He was on like a total high talking about how this race was the best thing he had ever done and the hardest thing he had ever done. And, you know, my brain at the time didn't really compute because if you're not in the ultra endurance world, you know, it's too abstract to think about, you know, a 4,000 kilometer cycling race. Like, what does that even involve? When someone tells you that, you're like, it sounds painful to anyone who, you know, kind of who's hearing it for the first time. Exactly. And, you know, he was laughing about dogs chasing him and sleeping in like, I don't know, a playground at night on a bench or something like and just... You know, all these kind of wild tales, but just super happy and jubilant. You can't really explain the high to anyone. Yeah, you can. It's just something that you experience and you really can only put them in words in so many ways. Exactly. Before someone has to actually experience it. Exactly. So, you know, it kind of got me a bit intrigued. And I was at a point in my life where, you know, I'd always been sporty, as I said, but you know, a pretty bad athlete, if you want to say that, like, always coming in in CrossFit, for example, I'd always be like the last to finish, I would never really lift super heavy, because I just didn't want to. And I knew I was capable of a lot more, but it's just a matter of what I actually wanted to do. So I thought, hmm, this looks interesting. Like, you know, if Chris can do something like this, maybe I should do something like this, not having any clue about what it was about. So one night we were at a barbecue, a few drinks were involved, and um, Chris, of course, was talking about the race, you know, because it was just front of mind, and people were asking about it. And I said, hey, do you think I could do something like that, sitting there across from him? And he goes, of course you could. He didn't hesitate one second. He goes, of course you could, if you train. So I said, okay, Chris, let's shake on it. I'm going to do the Transcontinental in 2019. Right. So we shook hands. I went back to Dubai and kind of just fell into a bit of a routine. You know, September, we know summer kind of dies down here. And then September, it's all like guns blazing in terms of work. And really fell back into, you know, pattern with work, training a little bit, but training like at CrossFit, not really going to seek out and try to find a bike. I think I went to Al-Qudra 
the first time and did 50 kilometers, which was difficult <laughs> on a rental. All right. And then the second time I went, they didn't have a bike the day I went to rent it they didn't have a bike until later in the day so went kind of when it was quite a bit hot and ended up getting sick (laughs) after 50k and just kind of started training from there being a bit slack in terms of looking for a bike being a bit slack in terms of looking for a coach but just kind of asking Chris for advice all along the way Okay, that's interesting. And then once that happened, how did you move on to kind of then signing up for a race? The transcontinental has quite a lengthy application process because it is a huge undertaking and they want people... And what year were you signing up for? I was signing up for 2019. Right. So I think the applications for the race weren't open until early December, I think. But I kind of had my mind set on that. And the race was set to take place in August, I think, you know, July or August 2019. That that would give you a year to train. Almost a year. So I was kind of never really, you know, thinking too much. Oh, I've got time. I've got time, you know, whatever. And one thing I've learned through ultra racing is that I love a deadline. (laughs) When a deadline is imminent, it really spurs, spurs me to action. So yeah, like you know, a year away, that's like, oh, it's forever. Like anything can happen in that time. So I wasn't really taking anything too, too seriously. So, you know, was renting the bikes, kind of looking around for a bike, not really being very serious about it. I talked to a couple of coaches and one coach, you know, having known me, I guess, from CrossFit, looked at me and he's like, you know, that's very serious. But the transcontinental was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) Of course I know it's serious. You know me, I'm not like a super, I'm serious about stuff, but I don't act, you know, I'm not like a serious person, like with a furrowed eyebrow all the time, like training is fun to me. And, you know, he kind of looked at me like, oh, she's not gonna do that and I was like whatever and um you wrong buddy yeah but then he did mention you know have you thought about signing up for some shorter races and I was like oh there's other races you know it's just kind of like one track transcontinental Mm -hmm. that's it and I did a bit of research and there was a race happening in late February biking man Oman it was a thousand kilometers good training race and I decided to sign up for that. And, you know, I said to Chris, I was like, oh, look at this race. And he goes, hey, that's perfect. It's perfect training, you know, like for the transcontinental. So I was like, yay. And excellent. when you signed up, did you go through the elevation? Did you go through, I mean, other than the distance, which you knew was a thousand kilometers, yep. did you know anything about the terrain that you were going to take on? Not really at that stage. Right. I didn't have a bike at this stage okay. when I signed up for it. Mm-hmm. So this was early December. I had signed up for that race or late November, early December. And the race was uh, due in... Um, it was end of February. End of February. Yeah. And again, deadline, love a deadline. So signed up for that race and then did my application for the Transcontinental, which took quite a, a while because you have to do a lot of research. Again, they're trying to weed out people, you know, based on how serious you are. It's just not a simple matter of putting your name down and paying a fee. You have to go and through... turning up. Yeah, you yeah. have to answer a lot of questions about your cycling experience, you know, do research to show that you're capable of figuring problems out. 
support. Because, because this is a self-supported race. Yeah, correct? they're all self-supported, meaning that you're kind of let out into the wild and you have no support team. You have team. to fend for yourself. You have to fend for yourself. Whatever is commercially available to any other rider, you can do. So you can go to a bike shop if you need to, but you need to find a bike shop. And sometimes there's no bike shop in these small little towns in the middle of rural Oman. So yeah, I signed up for those two races and okay, I said, okay, well, I need to get a bike. <laughs> Found a bike, got the bike, signed up for the Spinney's 92 race, which is 92 kilometers here. Because you were just trying to rack up the miles. Just trying to rack up miles, just trying to get some experience in cycling because I never really, um, yeah, I just was riding alone, had no clue really what I was doing. Did the Spinney's race, and so that was early December, got my bike, and I think two days later I did the Spinney's race, Spinney's 92 and um, was chatting some guys at like, you know, the start of it and was saying to them, I'm going to do Biking Man Oman. They were all kind of like looking at each other like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I got my bike two days ago and I'm going to do an ultra in a couple of months. But did that race, you know, and that was my first taste of really riding in a Peloton. I hadn't done that. So I just decided safety was the focus. Did that and it was quite easy when you're in a Peloton because you're kind of just taken with the group. So it wasn't physically strenuous race for me. Right. It was more just the experience of it and learning and trying to be safe. I didn't even have a bike computer at the time. So everyone was like turning on their bike computer. I didn't have a Wahoo or a Garmin or anything. So I, it was just like... No people, Strava? No Strava. Oh I my didn't, God. I didn't have Strava until That's after not my even first... A, I, I <laughs> it didn't, didn't even happen. It didn't even happen. It didn't even happen. I don't even count that as a... <laughs> Yeah, so did that race. And I guess from there, that race was really a moment. I have to say, too, you know, it was clipped in. If you're not used to being clipped in, it is a thing. I and know all about I did, that. yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I did the race, and I was so proud of myself for not like making a fool out of myself. I got off the bike and took a couple of photos, and then I literally cycled like, 50 meters to go where you had to dismount your bike and in front of a whole bunch of people couldn't unclip and fell on my side which was really embarrassing but I think you need to do that at least once but that race was really a moment where then things started to ramp up dramatically for me that was the longest I had rode my bike did you find a coach then as well I did not because I didn't want anyone telling me I couldn't do it <laughs> and I think at that stage, any responsible coach <laughs> would tell you that you can't prepare in four months to kind of take on. At that stage, I had two months. At that stage, I had two months. months right. But I think any responsible coach, not knowing me really well, would have probably said, you shouldn't do it. And I didn't want anyone to, to tell me you. that I could not do it because I knew I could. And the reason I knew I could is because I had self-belief that I could, but also Chris, who has the experience, said that, you could. said that I could. So who am I to argue with Chris? Chris knows. Who am I to argue with myself? I could do it. Yeah. So I didn't get a coach. And I don't think that was a mistake for my first race, to be honest. I think it was the way things went. And I was ultimately successful in my goal to finish. So, you know, we'll discuss coaching, I think, in some of the podcast episodes that 
beyond this, but I do think there is value absolutely in having a coach for many, many different reasons. But so at that stage, I didn't have a coach, but I ramped up my training quite dramatically. So you were structuring this yourself? I was structuring it myself. What did it look like? (laughs) I mean, it was structured insofar as I, I had a plan in my head to do stuff every week and I executed on it. But were you drawing from someone else's experience then? Well, I was saying, you know, Chris, at the beginning of the my training for this, Chris is like, oh, if you can do 50 kilometers, you can do 70. If you can do 70, you can do 100. You do 100, you can do 200. <laughs> so that was pretty much what was in my head, just increased distance with every ride that I was doing. And you were training in Al-Qudra. I was training in Al-Qudra almost exclusively in December. I climbed Jebel Jace for the first time in January. But yeah, so I did the 92 kilometers. Which is the highest mountain peak in the UAE. Highest mountain peak in the UAE. I think at that stage, like if you go right to the top, it's like 1,400 meters. So you go from sea level to 1,400 meters. Taking a step back to December, I just increased my distance. So I did the 92 kilometers of spinnies, fell on my butt at the end of it, got back up, dusted myself off with my one cycling kit, washed it, and then went out, I think, the next day for a ride. But that next weekend, then I think I did 100 kilometers. And then the weekend after that, I think it was 120 kilometers. And then I spent about a week off the bike over Christmas, got back, and I think my first ride probably in the new year was up Jebel Jace, and I stopped two times. I bought the bike computer for that purpose, right? because I was riding with someone else, and I didn't want them to see what a newbie I was, so I remember running out that night to try to get a Wahoo. And not having a clue how to use it, but I was like, okay, I've got a Wahoo now, so they don't know that I'm such an amateur. But did Jebel Jace, and then from there, just increasingly, not increasingly, but consistently, I think I did 200 kilometers the next weekend out at Al-Qudra. And then my biggest ride before the race, or my biggest weekend of training, was I did Jebel Jace twice in a day. And then the next day I did 206 kilometers. Back to back. Back to back, yeah, day after day. That's pretty much what you need if you're simulating anything. That's what you need. Yeah, if you're simulating a race, you probably should do two huge days. This is just what worked for me. But for me, it was not only the physical, but the mental of knowing you can do back to back two really intense days and feel okay after that, then I think that mentally helped me. I was, I felt mentally prepared for the race, but also physically prepared for it. And also you had to kind of look at different terrains because Oman's not flat. In the ultra world, Oman is a flat race. Right. You know, I think it was 8,700 meters of But nothing's as flat as the UAE. Oman's got rolling hills and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, Al-Qudra is great. In some respects, training at Al-Qudra, which is completely flat, gave me confidence to do those distances. And had I started in really hilly terrain, who knows how long it would have taken me to... Break. Yeah, to break, but also to build up to 200 kilometers, you know, like in a day. So I think it kind of, it might have been a false sense of confidence, but it gave me confidence. And then, you know, for me, when you're in a situation where you're forced to do something, you rise to the occasion. So mm-hmm. to go back to Oman, it was 8,700 meters of elevation. And a lot of that was Jebel Shams. <laughs> we'll go into the race day by day, but a lot of that is Jebel Shams, which has about a seven or eight kilometer section of gravel. And 
And a lot of times ignorance is bliss because I didn't really think too much about any terrain other than tarmac. And again, I rose to the occasion when I had to do it. My first time ever on gravel was on Jebel Shams. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I think the physical training. Throw yourself into the deep end. Yeah, exactly. I swim or sink. Exactly. And I've done that, I guess, in other aspects of my life. So it wasn't so out of the ordinary to do something that maybe other people would look at and say she's completely unprepared for that or doesn't know what what she's getting into. But I'm capable of handling many different situations. I have confidence in myself to figure stuff out. Everything's figure outable. Figure outable. You know, you can figure out a lot of things if, if you have a smartphone and access to data or internet, whatever. There's yeah. a wealth of information yeah. at your fingertips to, to figure stuff out. So I never really worried about me not being able to figure it out. But that's the training bit of it. There that's is, the training there bit, There's yeah. a massive element of the self-support bit that you really need to prepare yourself for. Yeah. Like, you've got the riding down, you've got the distance down. How do you prepare yourself for just being thrown out there into the wild? Yeah, I think there's two different things to think about. One is mentally how you deal with things, but also there's, you know, very practical elements about self-supported ultra cycling races that you need to consider. I'll talk about, I guess, the practical elements first. So, As I mentioned, you are completely responsible for yourself on these races. So you're responsible for your nutrition, refueling, you know, your water breaks, your navigation, anything that goes wrong with your bike. You should be able to fix it or if it is fixable, if it is a simple fix and deal with that. There's no outside support needed, not even from an information point of view, really for other people. People shouldn't be feeding you information about stuff. So I went about preparing that, just kind of reading as much as I could, you know, other people's experiences, asking Chris tons of questions just about, you know, everything that I could think of could happen. I paid a mechanic here to go through certain elements of bike mechanics with me. So fixing a puncture, breaking chains, all this kind of stuff. And it's something I need to get back into now. Like I can fix a puncture, but beyond that, you know, some of it, try to figure it out. But mechanics is a huge element. Again, you might not need it, but it's having that confidence. And then kind of race management. With the Biking Men series of ultra cycling races, the route is determined. So you don't actually have to figure out what route you're going to take. Right. It's kind of all predetermined, which is, like, it's not easy, but like, it's certain. It just removes one element of complication from. Exactly. Because right. route planning, like the transcontinental, for example, you have to plan completely your route and you have to add certain elements of um, required parkours into that route so it's all about your strategy then you know how how you're going to strategize how your route's going to help you or hurt you I didn't have to think about that element but studying the route that they had put forward was super helpful in advance to kind of know okay so based on my training and what I know I'm capable of how far am I going to go in this day plus you can just upload it onto your Garmin or your Wahoo is that how that works yeah yeah so you upload it onto your bike computer and it just kind of takes you so I know some people like I've spoken to here really worried about you know navigation it's just it's just reading you know an arrow on a map it's like Google Maps, but it's on your bike computer kind of thing. And, you know, my Wahoo flashes red if I'm off course kind of thing. And 
you do have potential to go off course, but you have a phone with you, you know, to kind of check and back up and things like that. So yeah, I really kind of just read enough what I needed to know and then kind of studied the route a bit and kind of had a rough plan in my head about how far I would go each day, what I was planning to do. So I guess everything really happened between December and January. All of this was going on in the background ahead of the race. I guess in the background to this as well, the transcontinental doesn't accept everyone. And there were I you know I forget the date that they had come out and they were letting people know if they had a place or not and I didn't get an email I was like oh that's odd so I went back and I emailed the race organizer and said it didn't appear it appeared I had started an application and didn't finish it and the amount of time I spent I for sure finished it and what I think happened at that stage was I was really excited hit submit and shut the computer before it actually right, submitted. So it didn't go through. So it didn't go through and I didn't get a place in the transcontinental. Okay. What also happened in January is that I got sick <laughs> and I got busy with work. So I had a good 10 days off the bike at one stage in January. And I think during that time was the only time I thought, okay, I've got Biking Man Oman coming up, which was supposed to be quote unquote training for the transcontinental, which I didn't get a place for now. I'm sick. Am I actually going to really do this? And a friend of mine in Australia, hi, Dan, you know, I had mentioned this to him and he's like, what's the harm in just going to the start line? Just seeing, just trying, you know, like what's the harm in starting to ride yeah, your bike that day? Up. Yeah. And he was right. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then when I felt well enough, I started training again and kind of, yeah, ramped up. This is essentially bikepacking, right? So how did you go about making sure that you had everything you needed to carry with you for this Biking Man uh, challenge? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more information now online. And you can find it on the metal set. Yeah, and you can find it on the metal set.com. Everything's laid out for you there. But Chris gave me his kit list. I had also attended a talk by Neil Copeland, who eventually went on to be my coach for the next race. But went on to listen to a talk to him, which was super informative and useful. But there's a lot of information online about, you know, what to pack, what to take. Chris gave me a list. And then I just kind of used my best judgment on what I needed, what I didn't. There's some things that are in the race manual that are required, like emergency blanket, lights, helmet, sunglasses, things like that for safety, front and back lights, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there's a lot of things at your discretion you know, as well, like what kind of equipment will you take if you have a problem with the bike, how many uh, inner tubes do you take if you are not running tubeless, things like that. So you just really just figure that out by yourself, you know, based on what other people have found useful um, with them and your bike set up. And that was kind of, you know, not too difficult. It was expensive. <laughs> it's not a cheap sport, you know, Absolutely. getting all this equipment set yeah. up. So you really need to be in that frame of mind and you need to be serious about it because yeah, you can't just do it on a whim. Like you actually have to plan. Yeah, I think you need to be prepared. And the first race, for example, I can go through it day by day, but the first race, for example, I had a certain light. I had that light for the second race as well. And I didn't have full confidence in it, you know, which is a safety thing in a lot right. of ways. So I got a different light for the third race and I felt way more confident. And you can tell, you know, I did 
way more distance and way less time for the third race that I did. So yeah, having the right equipment is really, really important, but sometimes it's only learning as you go and learning Mm -hmm. through trial and error. So race day is just around the corner. Yes. Did you have a support group? Was anyone else going for Oman? And did you find friends or did you find other challenges that you could connect with? Yeah, I think one of the things about the ultra cycling community is that it is extremely supportive of one another. People are very welcoming. They appreciate the effort. I think the effort is kind of recognized more than the actual achievement Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, the end of these races, there's no podium, there's no real winner ceremony. It's all about the experience. And there's as much respect for the people in the, the back of the pack as there are, you know, in the pointy end, which is nice. And I'm saying this because I, people who are doing the race and signed up for it kind of connected before. So I had that little supportive community Now, I didn't tell any of those people (laughs) that I was a relatively new cyclist. I kind of let that slip to very few people because I didn't want to let any kind of negativity or other people's view of their own limits affect me because that's essentially if people are like that's impossible well I'm like no it's impossible for you because you can't you can't imagine yourself doing that but it's not impossible for me so I didn't tell too many people in terms of my friends I told a few people I didn't really put it too much publicly out there because it was for me only you know it was a personal decision to see what I was capable of you know at a time when I probably needed a reminder of what I was capable of. So I just kept it to myself. I kept it very personal. It wasn't like some big sweeping statement on social media. I'm training for this because I didn't want anyone's expectations on me. It was purely for me. So yeah, I had some support. I had enough that I needed. And race weekend rolls around. I drove over. I had given a lift to Simon. It was his first ultra race as well, who ultimately uh, went on to found... Simon's a friend. Simon's a friend, Simon DeShooter. But Simon actually went on to found Race Around Rwanda, which we'll talk about in a bit. But So Simon drove out with me. I kind of told Simon my journey into cycling. And um, he was like, oh, wow. (laughs) But then, you know, talking about how much training I'd done, he goes, oh, it seems like, you know, you're prepared. And race weekend rolls around. Everybody's from all corners of the world. And I just remember sitting in the race briefing thinking, keep your head down. Don't talk too much to anyone because someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, (laughs) ma'am. You don't belong here. You know, because there are some really serious athletes competing in this race. You know, someone who climbed K2, multiple world record holders, like just people that... And a few from the UAE, right? Yeah, there was a little UAE contingency of people. So I just remember sitting there like, keep your head down, don't say anything. And after the race briefing, I grabbed my bike outside and there was a huge tear in my tire. And I didn't have spare tires, which was actually a blessing in disguise that had happened before the race because I went into, you know, we were a little outside of Muscat, went into Muscat, got tires, brand new tires, raced back, got like maybe three hours sleep and then was on the start line the the next next morning. Yeah. Right. And what was it like at the start line? I mean, in terms of everything from your nerves to 
what was racing in your mind and to people around you really yeah I think there's always an element of like nervous energy at these start lines and for me I just had nothing to lose I had nothing to lose for this this is again like going back to Dan's words just start see how you go and just start so I really felt like I had nothing to lose and I'm very pragmatic so what I told myself was this is however many days you know, you're going to do, all you have to do is cycle today. You don't have to, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be in touch with people. You just have to ride your bike, Yeah. you know, and as far as you can that day. So I just broke it down. Like if you look at kind of a thousand kilometers, like you're going to do a thousand kilometers. Well, it's big. You know, if you're going to do 300 kilometers that day and that's all you have to do, then that's a little more manageable. And even then when you're on the bike, it's breaking it up. I'm just going to go 50 more kilometers and see how I feel. I'm going to go 100 more kilometers, you know, for a break and stuff like that. So if you keep breaking it up, it just becomes a lot more manageable. But had you made those decisions in advance, like I'm going to do an average of X number of hours on the bike today and then also kind of stop at some point, you know, maybe start at this hour and then end before, you know. Yeah, my plan was to ride at least 300 kilometers the first day. I had actually booked accommodation. Just beyond 300 kilometers was Jebel Shams. And I didn't think I was quite ready to go up that in the dark. And fatigued. And fatigued, yeah, Mm -hmm. after, you know, a huge first day. So I had really worked out the first day. And then I had kind of just developed plans as they went along. You know, my goal for the first race was not to come last it was to finish and not come last so after that first day I kind of plans were made day by day really depending on weather conditions depending on how I was feeling because it was just everything was new to me now I think you know having done two races successfully and a third one not successfully but also you know it's a learning I think I'd have more of a, a plan but these things always whatever you plan for will go out the window you need to have plan a b c d and e when you're doing them so and the ability to to figure out a plan on Mm -hmm. the fly Mm -hmm. so yeah i planned for day one and then just see how day one go per plan yeah so day one at the start line again everyone's a bit nervous kind of like looking around i i was nervous i don't want to say like i wasn't nervous i was of course it was entering into the unknown but it's just kind of like you know you hop on your bike you the wheels start turning pedals are turning and um you're just like, oh, I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And as then, long as you keep moving. Yeah, as long as you keep moving. And then around 60 kilometers in, I was like, I'm an ultra cyclist. <laughs> I was like, I am doing this. I am an ultra cyclist. And then a little beyond that, I came across this really busy intersection, which I haven't told anyone, but I actually got off the bike to cross it because <laughs> I was so afraid. I wasn't really it's used. Fine. Yeah, I wasn't really used to like riding around cars. And yeah. It had taken me, you know, through this town at rush hours. So I got a bit nervous Plus, about that. Plus, you don't do that here. Right, you're training in a really, really controlled environment. If you're training in Dubai, in Al Qudra, or in Nadal, exactly, exactly. So, as I say, sometimes ignorance is bliss. You know, you just kind of rise to the occasion when you're doing it. And yeah, I did that the first day. Also important to note, I'd never used navigation before. Like I'd never loaded yeah loaded a map onto my bike computer until like the day before, and that was the first time I was looking at (laughs) where the map was taking me and stuff but 
I mean, it's not rocket science, you know? So I was just like, oh, okay, this is it. Oh, it's flashing red. Oh, is this, am I going the wrong way? No. Oh, I'm like two meters one way rather than the other. So yeah, that was the first day. First day was great. You know, it was just kind of like being around people and, you know, I was at the back of the pack and running into people, ran into this guy, Melwin, who like me, Melwin lives in Bahrain. But like me, had kind of come in very, very late to the game in terms of training. Melman didn't have flipped in pedals. He was on flat pedals. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that's a... I don't know. I mean, I, when I started on, you know, clip-ins, I was just like, why do we even need this, I guess? You'd like, no, like, yeah, I would centuries never... Centuries people have, like, cycled without them, right? Like, why do you need it's, them? Yeah, it's way more economical. It, yeah, and then energy. you're like, oh, wow, okay, the transfer of power is so much more seamless and yeah, yeah, efficient yeah. that... Yeah, maybe I don't want to do this in sneakers. Yeah, so I ran into Melwin on the way, and we were kind of, we're not really riding together, like, you know, in the sense of you, you can't really ride together, but we were riding, you know, similar kind of together, you know, not yeah. together, but together yeah. kind of thing. So we rode for a little while, and then Melwin decided to go up Jebel Sham. So yeah, day one was good. Got into the, you know. Uneventful for the most part. Well, Came across somebody who had broken their collarbone. That was oh, a bit gosh. of a... What, was that someone on the Biking Man Challenge? Yeah, on the race. Yeah, somebody on the race who had around 60, 70 kilometers in and was on the road. So that was a bit, oh, okay. Like, you know, stuff can happen. <laughs> but an ambulance came, took them off, okay. took them, you know, kind of to get care and stuff. So, I mean, it was, for the most part, as far as ultra cycling races go, uneventful for me. Right. Ended up staying at, you know, a hotel um, in a town just ahead of Jebel Shams. And, you know, when I got into the shower that night, Oman's like the UE, very dusty. The water just ran brown (laughs) (laughs) coming off your skin. But, you know, good night's sleep. I think around 4 a.m., 4 or 5 a.m., I was out on the road again the next morning. This episode is supported by Deep Dive Dubai. We know that our listeners love awesome adventures. And take it from us, it doesn't get more awe-inspiring than the world's deepest pool. Measuring a record-breaking 60 meters, Deep Dive Dubai gives both scuba and freedivers the ability to discover an underwater world complete with the latest in dive technology and an abandoned sunken city. For those new to diving, like me, it's the ideal place to get started. And for those experienced to expert divers out there, it's the perfect place to hone your skills with exceptional facilities, expert staff, and state-of-the-art technology. Since it opened in 2021, it has mesmerized visitors and continues to deliver extraordinary experiences seven days a week. For more information and to book your experience, visit deepdivedubai.com. So day two was very, very challenging. It is the day I did Jebel Shams. And Jebel Shams is a beast. So as I was riding towards Jebel Shams, a lot of people were coming down from Jebel Shams. Tell us a little more about the profile, though. Oh, God, I need to look it up. (laughs) It's just a monster. It is a monster. And it's full of very, very steep sections. Like, I think my bike computer was saying, like, 25 at some point. And previous year you could see some of the top ultra cyclists in the world walking up Jebel Shams Mm. you know or parts of it anyways as I mentioned there's that seven kilometer gravel section which is very very steep gravel as well one of my friends Kat called it the walk of Shams (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a walk of shame, walk of shams. And it was a challenge. So as I was riding up, people were riding down. We are all like saying good morning to each other. And, um, you know, I ran into Derek and Emma. I wouldn't be able to even get two words out. Imagine. Oh, no, this is riding towards, towards, not up. Okay, not up. Yeah, not up yet. Riding towards the the mountain. And um, at the bottom, I ran into two UAE-based cyclists, Derek and Edmund. And they were like, oh, do you have water? Here's some water. You know, very, like, nice and... Like, you know, get water where you can. And, you know, they just come down. And then I started going up. And I tried to ride as long as I could and zigzagging across the pavement and just really hoping I don't fall over. And then I decided to just walk. (laughs) It was just, it's like a wall. I'd actually be afraid to drive up it, Hmm. to be honest with you. Like these little work trucks are going up it and I would actually be fearful to drive oh up God. in my car how That's long how steep did it, it was. take for you to walk it so I started walking and there were a bunch of photographers who were capturing people coming down and then uh, around the corner I took off my shoes as well my cycling shoes walking on the tarmac because I didn't want to comfortable to walk in well, That's I all. didn't want to ruin the cleats. And, yeah. Yeah. And they're not that comfortable. Too. They're not, yeah, slippery on tarmac, right? So took those off and just was walking up, had, you know, the shoes on kind of my tri bars in the front of the bike. And I was walking up and there were all these photographers who were <laughs> taking photos of people coming down and then they all turned their attention to me and I'm walking and I'm like, no, I'm like, don't take photos of me here. <laughs> take photos of me zipping down. Mm-hmm. Like... <laughs> wait a little while please so they were quite nice but yeah there's a lot of photos of me walking up Jebel Shams and I walk for a bit and then the profile of the mountain it goes super super steep and then there's a couple of bits that are kind of like flat or you know even out a bit or go down a little bit so for those sections I got back on the bike started to cycle and then you reach the gravel section which was again I'd never I'd never rode a bike on gravel Thankfully, that summer I did do some mountain biking, mm-hmm. which was super helpful. You know, I kind of had some idea on how to to ride on gravel, but I had never rode on gravel like that. Yeah, it was just so I just got off the bike and um, started to walk. Again, I took off my shoes, shoes. so I right. walked in my socks on seven kilometers of oh, gravel. God. And just walking along, it's funny, I didn't feel it if that makes sense. I don't know. I didn't let my mind go there that this is horrible because mm-hmm. it was a horrible experience, mm-hmm. but I didn't tell myself it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of carried on and listening to music and ahead of the race, Neil Copeland would be like, don't forget to enjoy the race, you know, enjoy it as well. Like take a moment. And I was like, okay. And I was like, wow, this is beautiful as I'm walking, you know, in sock feet on this gravel, just hurting my feet and stuff. So that took a long, long time. A couple of cyclists had passed me, and I, the checkpoint was closing soon. So I needed to get a boogie on to get up there. And right before the checkpoint, there's a hotel right at the top. Right before the checkpoint, there's like a couple of kilometers of tarmac again. So I got back on the bike, you know, rode that section. 
and got to the checkpoint with, I think, two hours to spare. And David, one of the organizers, was there. And I just stopped. And I was like, he's like, hi, welcome to checkpoint one. And I was like, hi. And then I just burst into tears because yeah. <laughs> I was so happy yeah. to be there. You were overwhelmed. Yeah, I was overwhelmed. I think it was just everything that I was holding in for, you know, walking up this monster mountain. I was holding it all in. And it just released when I got there. So a few of us gathered, people who made the checkpoint, the cutoff, and we ate. And then I just realized, oh God, I have to go down this. <laughs> I have to ride down this, which was like super terrifying. Right. The gravel section was super terrifying to ride down. But as I said, I'd just done some mountain biking, like downhill mountain biking in, in France that summer. So yeah, I guess a bit of experience. I don't know, like twice I've <laughs> been before, right. but it helped. <laughs> How long did it take you to do day two then? Day two was pretty much Jebel Shams and down. Right. Yeah, okay. it, that was pretty much it. Like I cycled on for a bit further. And then that night actually ran into Melwin again. <laughs> Melwin kind of came out from nowhere, uh, literally came out. I was eating French fries uh, somewhere. How many kilometers was this? Goodness this must have been four or 500 kilometers mm -hmm. in or something like that. Or no, I think the second day I did 170 kilometers. Okay. So that would be maybe 450 mm -hmm. kilometers around yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, ran into Melwin again. We had French fries. And then there was a big... The scarb loading is everything. These races, you'll hear this multiple times from anyone who does it. They're eating competitions on two wheels, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Food is very, very important. And the fact that I haven't talked about it yet is a bit weird, but... Eating is very, very important on these races. But anyways, I digress. Anything and everything and from wherever you get it. Yes. I couldn't look at a Snickers bar after the race for many weeks. I didn't want to see another Snickers bar given how many I'd eaten on this race. So yeah, I ran into Melwin and then my lack of experience, my bike lights were all gone. Mm. And Melwin rode behind me back eight kilometers so I okay. could get safely to a hotel, mm -hmm. which was very nice of him yeah, to I do that. Yeah, I think that's just to kind of go back to what you said. It's it's always, you'll find support in this sport. Yeah, I mean, these races, look, there's other races that are very, very strict about like that, you know, kind okay. of element of another person helping you like that. But these ones in particular are... You know, it's kind of more in the spirit of the mm -hmm. race. Okay. If you're going to do an ultra race, make sure you're aware of what the rules are and yeah. what's acceptable and mm -hmm. what's not. But yeah, it was very much in the spirit of us kind of in this together, right. which was very, very kind of him to do that. And I stayed at a hotel that night and then, uh, yeah, ready for... Did he ever tell you why he did them in his uh, sneakers, though? He wasn't an experienced cyclist either. Okay. <laughs> I think Melwin had, has the same kind of trajectory as I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I think he had done like one triathlon before. I don't know. Maybe we need to get Melwin on the podcast at some stage. <laughs> yeah. But what had happened was he had done, I think, a triathlon or something and then wanted to do an ultra. So I think he came into it quite new as well. New as well. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I don't know why these reasons were that he didn't have. I just need to know if he's gone to cleats now, like if he's actually been introduced to cleats. Yeah, we should check that out. <laughs> I'll touch base with them and give him a heads up. This is is coming up but people have done the transcontinental on flat pedals mm -hmm. as well there was this year a guy did it on a brompton mm -hmm. bike so you know for people That's who are worried insane. oh do i have the right bike do i have the right equipment yeah. like yes you do <laughs> i think sometimes it's it's all mental like you can endure 
as long as you're determined to do it. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. That was day two. Day two. How, how many more days of <laughs> did, endurance did, did you have two, left in you? I did two more days. It was kind of just, ultimately, I finished in 105, 104 hours. Day three was quite uneventful. Again, like it was kind of... And just for the benefit of everyone listening, 104, 105 hours, is that normal? Like a normal amount of time to the finish race such a long race? Yeah, the race, so 1,000 kilometers, 1,050. The race cutoff was 120 okay. hours. I think 104 hours, I think finishing is great. Finishing mm-hmm. is a massive achievement. For context, I will say... Rodney, who finished first that year, I think he did it in 28 hours. <laughs> but that's another planet. Like, also, I'm, I'm a, he's I imagine tier. he's a seasoned ultra cyclist, probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That would be then, an understatement. There you go. That's but but like, that's the pointy, you know, that's the pointy yeah. end. People mm-hmm. were doing it in like 20. So yeah, he And how many hours. were competing? I think Do you there remember? Was roughly 70 people, maybe, okay. competing in this particular race. So 104 as a first effort is pretty good, oh, I think. Yeah. I would, again, I think anyone who finishes these races, you know, is, it's amazing. But yeah, yeah. I, I was quite happy with my time. Day three, yeah, very uneventful. Morning of day four, I made it to the second checkpoint of the race. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, I was kind of getting a bit more comfortable with kind of telling people that I wasn't a very experienced cyclist. And, you know, they were asking me at checkpoint two, it was Laura and Renette, and they were just kind of asking, you know, oh, why did you do this? And I said, oh, I got the bike like two months ago. And they're like, why? Like, you had another bike. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so words started... the bike. Yeah, words started to get around that I was kind of like, there's a bit of a lunatic on the, mm-hmm. on the course who's bought a bike two months ago and yeah. is now doing an ultra race. But the day before, so that day you kind of cycle up the Omani coast mm-hmm. through a town called Sur and Oman is just stunningly beautiful it's similar to the UAE in a lot of ways but also very different in so many and the coastline there is just phenomenally beautiful the day before however that coastline and the route had a massive sandstorm it was like horrific like people were going like 10 kilometers an hour oh, wow. and like really pushing hard to reach that speed like because they just had headwinds and sand lashing them and the day I went up the coast, it's clear. It was beautiful, and I had the most fantastic tailwind. I was going like forty kilometers an hour. <laughs> well, the benefit of being slower than the rest. Yeah, well, also too like <laughs> managing you know weather patterns and yeah. stuff like that, and along with yourself. Like it wasn't. It was by fluke for me, of course. <laughs> like just by virtue of but, me being. Yeah, slow. there's a lesson there. You you might as well kind of. Check yeah, the sometimes. And yeah, and there's been lessons plan like. Exactly. And there's been lessons in this year's transcontinental as well about there was one particular pass that had mm-hmm. really horrible weather. And I think some people went down it, but they would have probably gained time if they just stayed. Right. But anyways, beautiful weather. I was like cruising up the coast. These two guys pulled up in an SUV and were like, hey, can we take photos of you? And I was like, are you with the race? And they're like, yeah. I was like, okay. But I was like thinking, I said, yeah, I said, okay. But I said, if you would, weren't with the race, I would have thought that was a bit weird. So I was like, you know, there's kind of like rolling hills on the coast of Oman. And, you know, I was like, they tell you at the beginning of the race, like, ah, cool. You know, if the camera shows up, like, just we want to capture you in your element. 
And I was just like totally acting up for the camera. I was like getting above the butt. <laughs> I was like, I want some good photos out of this. Yeah. And they were kind of following me along. And then they waved goodbye and I waved goodbye. And I thought, oh, that was it. You know, I'm not going to see these guys again. And end up in Sur at this small kind of grocery store with this bag of junk food. Like Snickers, crackers, anything sugary I could get my hands on. Like bag of it. And I sit down literally in a pile of trash outside, <laughs> opening up my bag of junk food, ready to eat. And I look up and there's a photographer. a photographer. I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> Don't capture me like this. And um, that's the essence of the race. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit funny. So I was just chatting to, it was Ryan and Lander who, you know, were documenting the race. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, don't take my photo. And so I just got chatting with them and, you know, they were, their own experiences of cycling and ultra cycling. And Ryan was asking me questions about the bike. And I was like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. I still don't. I'm not very good at, like, technical stuff with the bike. I'll put that out there. And that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. I will own that. And I said, yeah, I just got the bike, like, two months ago. And he's like, again, people are like, this is crazy, you know. Right. So... I kind of saw them on and off for the the rest of the evening or the rest of the day, you know, because they were kind of documenting different people within the race. They were documenting the people on the pointy end who had finished already. And then, you know, there were us stragglers left out for the last leg of the race. So that day ended up being quite eventful. I started very early in the morning and I knew there was another gravel section. This was the last day of the race? This is what I had hoped to be the last day of the race. And I feel a bit nervous talking about this because it's something I never really talked about publicly before. But I think it's <laughs> your experiences inform others. So I Exactly. Think, yeah. Again, the day was kind of flying. I was super happy. I was posting some stuff on social media and, you know, people were cheering me on and stuff, which was really like encouraging me, you know, to keep going. And I was like, I'm going to finish tonight. I'm going to finish. You know, I was like, ah. <laughs> all, all hopped up on Red Bull and no yeah. sleep, you know. And I think I was, I don't know, about 70, 80 kilometers outside of, of Muscat at that stage you know everything is relative so like in 70 kilometers in an ultra race is not that long you know it's literally mm-hmm. like your last five kilometers of a you know a 70 kilometer yeah. ride or whatever yeah. I was like I'm gonna finish tonight and I was like crazed you know I was like I was nodding in between like sleeping and then like chugging a Red Bull and being like wired and Lander and Ryan were there like and I was like I'm gonna finish ah. and like yeah. they looked at each other and they're like are you okay are you sure I was like yeah and um got back on the bike and went through these small towns and went through this gravel section mm-hmm. again another gravel section which was in the darkest wadi I have ever been in my life mm-hmm. like you couldn't see that far ahead of you the light I had was not fantastic so I was riding along in it and kind of tired and whatever and I went like I descended down a bump or something and mm-hmm. the tire hit quite hard and got a puncture and I was just in the middle of nowhere and it was completely pitch dark around me and I said I need to get out of this wadi you know like I just oh I need to leave you know I need to figure something out I don't know if I can fix this here by myself I just was so tired and so exhausted I said the rules of the race say that if you have a problem you can get assistance that would be available to anyone you know but you have to come back to the point where you stopped to continue the race Mm. so I was like if I just get out of this wadi and then I can come back 
you know, even if it's just to go sleep somewhere by the side of the road or on a bus stop, there was a bus stop a little mm-hmm. ways back. But I said, I'm just, I wasn't in my right frame of mind to fix this puncture at mm-hmm. this moment. I think it was like two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And this car drives by and I flag it down. And, you know, like many cars in, in this region, it's a huge SUV. And I said, hey, can you just drop me to the road, like to the main road, where there was light at least, you know, like I didn't, there were street lamps and stuff. And he was like, yeah, sure, you know, hop in. And, you know, living in this part of the world, you've lived here your whole life. You don't think twice about your safety. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. You know, and I didn't. And I've been UAE for, you know, eight years at that point, familiar with the region. I've never once felt unsafe like I have in other countries, you know, here, but my, you know, my person. So hopped in the SUV and start driving. And then this guy's kind of talking about, I said, oh, okay, you can just drop me up to the road. I wasn't afraid at this point. And then he says, oh, you can come to the beach with me and my friends. We're going to the beach now. And I was like, no, that's okay. I'm going to go to the road. And, you know, he's like, no, 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 come to the beach, come to the beach, you know, and I said, I'm just going to call my husband, like, I'm not married, but I was like, I'm going to call my husband and let him know where I am. (laughs) You know, and I was trying to reach some friends just to be like, hey, you know, I'm in this situation. Yeah, I'm in this situation. I just just need to talk to you for a minute. And again, like, I'm super fatigued at this point. I'd been up almost 24 hours cycling the whole day. And um, I look and there's an empty bottle of alcohol in the console, you know, and I was just like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. Like, I'm in serious trouble here. I don't know what's going to happen. What am I going to do? And, you know, at this stage, I was starting to get a bit afraid of what would happen. And I was like, please, you can just let me out here. It's fine. You know, I can walk the rest of the way. It's okay. No, 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 no. I wouldn't stop the car. And then I remember Ryan and Lander were following me earlier. I just went on Instagram and randomly messaged Ryan, like, hey, I'm in this situation. I was crying at this point, you know, like really upset. Ryan sends me his phone number. I phone him. And then Ryan and Lander literally came and like cut this guy's car off. And like, that's only when he stopped. He wouldn't stop. I was begging him to stop the car and he didn't. And that was the stage he had like stopped. And then they were like kind of yelling at each other. Like, because Ryan could hear me on the phone. He's like, she said, let her out. And you didn't, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, let's just go, you know, like super upset and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I went with Ryan and Landon and they dropped me off at a hotel. We phoned the race organizer and told them what had happened as well. Axel, you know, super understanding because it's like, I was hesitant to tell this because I don't want to scare other women from doing mm-hmm. these types of races. But I do think it's important to kind of, you know, highlight as women doing these races, there are certain elements of danger that perhaps we face rather than, you know, yeah. more so than than what a man would now that you've done a couple of races already do you think there can be like systems in place or as a woman how can you prepare yourself for a situation that you may just come across that you're totally like blindsides you yeah I I guess I want to start I've been thinking about it but like I want to start by saying it's never your fault you know what I mean like the reason I didn't really talk about this before is because number one it was my first race and I didn't want anyone to detract like I Like, it's so silly now, but I was like, would anyone say I got outside assistance, you know, if I'm like, literally trying to protect myself from whatever could happen. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, that went through my head, right? I didn't want anyone to to accuse me of getting outside assistance, because I literally went back there the next day and did Mm -hmm. it. But is there things that can be done? I think yes. I think we all have trackers on on this particular race. And there's one button that's like an emergency button, you're kind of told, unless you're don't push it unless you're like, 
really need of an emergency. Mm. And with situations, you know, many women will tell you they're so ambiguous sometimes. Mm. And it was like, is this going to turn into something? You Mm. know, like at what stage should I be really afraid? Mm. I was afraid then, but like, is he joking? Mm. You know, which is not appropriate, but is it a joke? So I didn't know if I should press that button. And I was so tired and everything, you know, like... I didn't. But in hindsight, I think race organizers should probably let women know in the race, like, it's okay to press that button. Mm. You know, it's okay. If you feel you're in danger, like, it has the potential to be something like that, then press the button, Mm. you know, because sometimes women have been so conditioned to be polite and nice and not cause trouble, you know, in a lot of ways that I think we're all like, oh, I don't want to cause any issues. Mm. But no, press it. If you feel you're going to be unsafe, then press the button. Mm. So I think that's one thing. I think, you know, and again, that shouldn't have happened. But and I've gone on to do two mm. other ultra races. So I, it doesn't, it hadn't deterred me from it. Mm. I'm just a little better prepared mm. about things mm. and maybe manage my race a mm. little better than what I did on that race. What happens when you push the button? Like what sort of support do you receive? They will like call emergency services. Mm. Okay. So it's kind of like expected if you're you know, injured on the side of the road, mm. things like that. You know, it's like a big, you're kind of at a life and death situation. I'm, I'm just wondering how soon do emergency services come to you? Well, it's, they know like it's a critical situation, right. you know, okay. so I don't, I don't know. Each right. race organizers mm. are different, but it's like they know that you're in a okay. critical type of situation. Right. So I think, you know, I would, I planned my races a little differently, you know, moving forward. I wasn't afraid for either of those two races and nothing happened like that. You know, there's lots of things to think about. There's other th- things that can go wrong. I never thought about that really. That didn't really enter my yeah, mind. I think what people races. need to understand is that it could happen in any situation. It's not exclusive to an ultra cycle exactly. race, right? It could have happened at any day you were walking and something happened. Yeah, for sure. Like it's kind of, you know, it's just unfortunately something as women we have to deal with Mm, a lot. So yeah, I mean, that did happen. I think hearing more from women about what they feel would make them safe run races would be useful as well, because I know there were some issues like with some of the bigger races and stuff, particularly when you have trackers, you can Mm -hmm. see where people are, you Mm -hmm. know, like dot watchers dot watchers are for the most part nice but like you know maybe there's a creepy dot watcher i don't know (laughs) we were saying like it'd be a good horror movie like dot watcher i'm Uh. watching you (laughs) but yeah so that was my last kind of day of the race which you know i didn't let it ruin my race you know it it doesn't need to detract from what you've accomplished and the race at all no no one part of the experience yeah it was one part but I think I held quite a bit you know you have these you have race brain you know when you do these races you're so like beat down and emotionally kind of drained and stuff you're like oh you know I didn't wasn't really thinking clearly and of course if anyone else had told me that story I'd be like oh my god you know are you okay like of course Mm. you did the race Mm. you earned it and stuff like that so I think you just kind of suppressed that experience for a while because I did yeah that you were going through yeah I did and then you know I finished the race the next day and super super happy and tired and you know it didn't yeah I just kind of moved on from it Mm. you know I will say yeah like I think maybe the more as women we have conversations about our personal safety on these races then you know things change change yeah or you know things get modified a bit to Mm. make it safer particularly for women you know and more um open for women and more comfortable for them to sign up kind of thing and and do the races but like as I said I did two other races where that didn't really 
enter that into That wasn't my, an issue at all. It wasn't an issue at all. It didn't even enter into my mind. There was a lot more. But know. it happens. I mean, I think that is also... It well, it happens. happened to me. It happened to me. Yeah. I don't know who else. Yeah, I haven't heard but, any other. But it, like any other situation, a woman has to be prepared for... Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? yeah, like uh, yeah, not, yeah. We're yeah. we're raised to protect ourselves from yeah. that, which is exactly crazy when you think about it. Yeah. You know, we're always like on guard and yeah. strategies and yeah. stuff like that. But yeah, I think on a practical level, it's something a woman should consider when she's doing mm. a race, just in terms of her race management mm. and stuff like that. And then I think you know, for race organizers, it's something they should consider and um, think about as well for the safety of the participants and also you know to encourage more women. Mm. To, to, to participate enter, yeah to participate yeah. in the races mm-hmm. so yeah that's kind of I don't know my ultra story I yeah as I said like had race brain for a little while after got interviewed you know after the race and by Ryan and Lander who were documenting it and they were like you know who motivates you and I was like no one mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think about when you ride your bike nothing nothing <laughs> I was just completely like the worst interview ever. But yeah, it was fantastic. And I'd highly recommend to anyone to do an ultra race or an endurance sporting event, a multi-day event. You know, they're just like a really wild adventure. I think, you know, for me, it's just the allure of like seeing a place differently. Right? Yeah. Like you're on your bike and you're just like going through these places that you wouldn't really kind of tap into if you were not on your bike. You would never. And I think, you know, when you're traveling a place and you go by a car, you're separate. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a bit separate from the people, from yeah. the community, from the elements. When you're out on a bike... You're so exposed to everything, Mm. you know, even the weather conditions, you know, the wind on your skin. And you have these interactions with people that are just so touching in a lot of ways and so human. You know, the amount of kindness that has been shown to me by random strangers across the three races that I've done gives you faith in humanity again. Like in Oman, on my way to checkpoint two, the last, there was that morning of what was supposed to be my last day, had things going a different way, but... I was riding through this small little town. It was early morning and people were, you know, starting to drive their cars to work or wherever, but it was very rural. And this bus full of children passed me, you know, these little girls, and they were all waving at me. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. And then I burst into tears. (laughs) You were emotional throughout. I was emotional. I was so emotional. But like, you know, it was just such a lovely moment. These little girls and their little faces, like all excited and waving to see me. They're like, probably like, who's this lunatic? But like, you know, it was just such a nice moment. It uplifted my spirits that day. And yeah, just it's kind of these moments you don't really have if you're kind of going Mm. through by a car or just kind of visiting somewhere to take off a list it's a real experience in the truest sense and an adventure yeah that's awesome I mean I think you know your story is pretty much the kind of stories that we are going to highlight moving forward as well yeah like we're gonna have so many people on this podcast who've done things that are unimaginable to us but Actually, if you see them and if you break them down, pretty much everyone who is determined can do something of that sort. Yeah, of course. I think, you know, as I said before, people will put their own limitations on you, you know, so it's up to you to decide what you're capable of, what you can actually do. It's not anyone else's opinion that matters. Mm -hmm. It's your own. So 
or maybe the people closest to you. But ultimately, you know, you're capable of way more, achieving way more than what you ever dreamed. But you just have to, I think there's a couple of different things you need to do is you need to find your why, like why you're doing this. For me personally, this was about proving to myself what I was capable of. Mm. And I had this firm belief, even if I was going to crawl over that finish line, I was going to finish this race. Even if I had to walk 100 kilometers, I was going to finish that race. I'd visualized, I'd seen myself finishing that race, and I knew I was going to do it. Nothing was going to stop me from finishing that race. And I think it was all tied back to my why. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And I felt deep down that I could. Yeah, I think we're really excited to kind of get more of such stories from people like you and people who are into ultras and into adventure sports out there. Yeah, and I think it's about getting the full spectrum of stories as well. You know, one of the things about the ultra races is, you know, the people at the front are just phenomenal athletes. Like, they're a whole different level. And they've got really unique stories. But equally, the people at the back, there are some amazing stories, you know, about people, why they're there, how they got there, what's important to them, what they've overcome to to finish this, what they've experienced on the race, too. There's so many unique stories that we want to highlight all of those. You know, it's just not about people at the front. It's just not about people at the back. It's about everyone, Yeah. you know, and sharing what we think will be helpful for people yeah. <laughs> to maybe inspire them and, you know, give them some kind of tools or resources and actionable insights to do a race like this, you know. And if you don't have like a Chris Thomas... I want to be your Chris Thomas. You can do it. Exactly. (laughs) I've got faith in you. Yeah, Yeah, we've got faith in you. Yeah, we've got faith in you. So thanks for listening. And hopefully you'll be back for more because we're going to have so many more stories to kind of tell and to kind of highlight. Yeah, no, and thanks for interviewing me, Afshan. Like, we have so many great guests lined up. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.